There's probably no place uh, on the planet where a sermon on pride is needed more than right here, because who are we? We're Americans. We are the self-proclaimed greatest country on the earth. We are a solo world superpower. We're the land of the free and the home of the brave. And we'll talk about kind of a, a good form of pride, and that's not always wrong to have pride in your country or your stealers or your pirates or that sort of stuff. But truth be told, those of us in this room, even the poorest in this room, are spoiled far beyond what the majority of the world will ever get to enjoy. We will, in a month and a half or so, sit down for a Thanksgiving meal that the vast majority of the world will never get a chance to see, observe, or partake of. Many, many people in many countries can't even fathom a grocery store where we go and we have all of this at our fingertips and our disposals. My son has more toys in one little basket in his room than villages inside of countries have. And if, and if we're honest with ourselves, we are a bit spoiled. And that makes a message on pride especially useful for us, but it also makes it especially difficult. Because I'll, I'll forewarn you that today may be a little more pointed than most days. It, it may touch a nerve easier than, than some other sermons would. But if there's any place that this is needed, it's probably here as Americans. And, and could it be if we were honest with ourselves and we asked ourselves tough questions that our hearts are plagued with the same sort of pride and spiritual cancer that Nebuchadnezzar's heart was plagued with? Could it be that our soul is dissatisfied sometimes for the same reasons that we'll see Nebuchadnezzar's was? Could it be that our life is falling apart right now or our life is about to fall apart because of our pride? In Nebuchadnezzar's life, his, his life went to shambles. He went from master of the universe to crazy guy eating grass. It, it, it disintegrated in a matter of moments. And it's possible that pride would do the same thing in our hearts and lives. And here inside of Daniel chapter 4, we're provided with an unbelievable case study in pride and what it can do to someone's life and honestly the remedy for pride at the same time. And this morning I want us to see this man, Nebuchadnezzar, who I would call a prisoner of pride. So I'm going to give you four points this morning. And uh, point number one is this, the restlessness of pride. Look in verse number 29. Verse 29, the Bible says this, At the end of 12 months, he, Nebuchadnezzar, walked into the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. Okay, so at the end of 12 months. What has been happening for 12 months is the question. And that's the first 23 verses. It lays that out for us. That 12 months prior, Nebuchadnezzar had, uh, had a dream. But before his dream, he was experiencing a sort of peace and happiness. And he is the one guy probably in all of the world at this point in time that should have no worries. No one will ever fire Nebuchadnezzar. No one will ever downsize him. No one will ever take his spot. He, he has nothing to worry about. He has money. He has food. He has a palace. He has walls. He has the army that is the greatest army in all the world. And somebody say, well, yeah, he, he had some to worry about. What if another army rose up and they overtook him? Nebuchadnezzar had conquered the larger armies of the world literally 30 years prior. He has been living with almost no battles to fight for decades now, and he's focused his attention on Babylon, 
on building cities and walls and gates and gardens. And we saw in chapter 3 a 90-foot-tall statue that's, that's made of gold. How do you have the time and attention to do that? You have the time and attention to do that because you're not worried about other stuff. You're not worried about the, the battle or the war or the army that's going to overtake you. He, if there's any man in all of the world that should have a peace or should have a rest and should not have a restlessness, it's this man, Nebuchadnezzar. And look in verse number 4. We're going to see to a degree that was true. Verse number 4 of, of chapter 4 says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my own house. Speaking of, there, there are no wars. There are no battles to fight. I, I have peace in that sense. And flourishing in my palace, that I am able to build and do what I want and have the cities I want and the temples I want, and I'm flourishing. But verse number five comes, and I saw a dream which made me afraid. If anyone shouldn't be afraid, it's this man. But it makes me afraid. And the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. In Nebuchadnezzar, it says visions, plural, that I personally believe that for a series of days he is having this dream and he is troubled and he is perplexed and his heart is worried and he's afraid and he doesn't know what to do. There is a restlessness deep inside of this man despite the fact that on the outside you would look and you would say if anyone ever should not be restless, if anyone should not care about a silly dream, it's this guy. He has everything you could possibly want, but he's restless. And this dream, just to give you the cliff note version, is a dream of a giant tree in the middle of the earth that grows, and everything under the earth is in it or under it. Birds are in it, beasts are under it, men are under it, and this tree covers the entire earth. And an angel comes from heaven and says, cut down the tree, but leave the root, leave the stump. So the tree is cut down, and Nebuchadnezzar is... He's obviously perplexed by this. And he calls in the magicians and the astrologers and says, tell me what this means. Give me an interpretation. Oh, what does this mean to me? And they say, we can't do it. And then comes Daniel. And he, the king says, oh, Daniel, great. I'm glad you're here. You know stuff. You have wisdom. You, you talk with God. What does it mean? And Daniel becomes, the Bible says, a stonied. He became almost white-faced or astonished. And Daniel says, king, I don't want to tell you what this means because this isn't good news for you. That tree is you. You're great. You're powerful. But that tree's getting cut down. And that tree is going to fall unless you turn from your ways and become righteous. Unless you show mercy to the poor. And then 12 months later, the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar walks into the palace. And he says, is this not the great kingdom I've built? Is this not my glory? Is this not my majesty? Is this not what I have done? And he refuses to turn. And we learn inside of this man that is the most accomplished man possibly in world history who's going to accomplish more than anyone under the sound of my voice today that this man, although he's accomplished so much and although he's done so much, he's not fully satisfied. There's still something deep inside of him that troubles him, that eats at him, that makes him afraid, that makes him perplexed, that it, deep inside of his soul there is a restlessness of sorts that he just can't seem to figure out. He can't get a handle on it. He can't, he can't produce this sense of joy and peace and satisfaction that he knows he needs. And he's known the power that only a few people in world history have known, yet he's still restless. Yet he's still troubled, he's still perplexed, and history tells us that those at the top of the top of the top are deeply troubled people. 
If you read anything about the Pharaohs or the Caesars or even in our modern society, the Michael Jacksons or the Robin Williams or whoever you want to list that reach the pinnacle and the zenith of their respective category, we learn that most of those people are deeply troubled individuals. And that is what Nebuchadnezzar is. He is he's restless. I came across an audio interview probably more than a year or so ago, but he has written a book. It's, it's a guy named Chad Williams. He wrote a book called Seal of God. And Chad says that when he was a teenager, all he wanted to do was become a Navy SEAL. That was his goal. That was his heart's desire. So Chad's dad decided to put an ad. I don't know if it was on Craigslist or the paper or what exactly he did to put an ad out, but he put an ad out to hire a current or former Navy SEAL to come train his son and convince him not to become a Navy SEAL and not to even attempt it. So he had a reply to this ad, and a guy by the name of Scott Helvenston replied, who was a current Navy SEAL, and said, I will go train your son, and I'll leave it to me, Dad. Give me one afternoon. He won't want to be a SEAL anymore. So he t Chad writes and says he took him out and, and started making him do all these push-ups and pull-ups and all this, you know. He was, he was at his end. He couldn't do one more, and he told him, you know, do 100 more. And, and all this crazy stuff. He'd take him on, on this run, and he would jump out of the bushes and hit him and knock him to the ground and just try to discourage him from, from you don't want to do this. But Chad kept going and kept going. At the end of the day, Scott went home to Chad's dad and said, you know, I think he has the stuff it takes to be a SEAL. And Chad, literally, he told him that. And Chad's dad said, well, would, could you, I hire you to tutor my son to be a Navy SEAL. And Scott agreed and said, yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. So he takes him under his wing, and after school, he begins to train him. And here's how long you need to hold your breath, and here's how far you need to run, and here's, here's the time you need. He begins to train him in, in SEAL training. In days before Chad enlisted into the Navy, he turned on the, he turned on the news. Scott was deployed at this time. He turned on the news, and there was on the news in Fallujah, Iraq, an attack that had been planned, and there was Scott, his mentor, Navy SEAL, tied to the back of a car, dead, being drug around. And Chad says, that put a fire in me to be a Navy SEAL and the best Navy SEAL that I possibly could be, like I have never known. And Chad enlisted in the Navy. He went into SEAL training. There were 173 people in his class, and 13 of them made it through to be a Navy SEAL. He was one of them. And Chad says, he's now a Christian, but he writes and says, I had thought for my entire life, for more than a decade, I want to be a SEAL. I want to be a SEAL. Once I go through that ceremony, once I make it, once I accomplish this, then I will have fulfillment. I'll have satisfaction. I'll be able to bring some sort of justice for Scott. I'll have some sort of peace. And he says, I got to that day, done with the ceremony. I went home, and I was just as empty as I was two, three, four, five years prior. And I be he began to fill his life with drugs and alcohol and women, and all the rest of it that you can possibly try to fill your life with. And he writes and says, I found out that the only thing that could bring me peace, the only thing that could bring me satisfaction, the only thing that could quench my restlessness was Jesus Christ. And now he's a Christian man who travels, he speaks at churches, he's written a book, Seal of God. But he, he learned what so many people deny. He, he, he learned once he reached the top of the military, of the U.S. military, what so many people deny. That we just think, if I could get there, if I could have this accomplishment, if I could meet this goal, if my 401k was this big and I could have peace about the, my future and the rest of my life, if I could just get the promotion, if I could just have one more kid, if I could, then I would have peace. 
Then I would have rest. Then, then I would feel some sort of satisfaction deep down inside. But Scott experienced what even Nebuchadnezzar experienced in Daniel chapter 4, that that does not come apart from God himself. And Nebuchadnezzar kind of speaks into our hearts and lives and tells us that the human heart wants something so big and so grand that you can pour all of the empires of the world into it, which happened in Nebuchadnezzar's life, and yet it can still be empty. And yet it can still be unsatisfied. And what is it that we're searching for? What is it that we long for? What is it that we want as a satisfaction and a peace inside of our lives? And as Christians, we know the answer to that. We know that only Jesus satisfies the soul. And that's a very existential argument. That's just a personal, I've experienced this. But if, if you know Jesus Christ, you have experienced that, that he is the only person that can quench that thirst and can, and can meet those goals and can truly give you the rest that you want. Our success, our achievement, our being a master of the universe never brings peace. There's always a sense of restlessness attached to it, and that's even in Nebuchadnezzar's life. But it's not just restlessness. We find this in Nebuchadnezzar's life. We find the root of pride. Look in verse number 30. After 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar walks into the palace, and this is what he says. Notice the personal pronouns. The king spake and said, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Now, I'll stop for just a moment and talk about pride because there is a, a quote-unquote pride that is a good form of pride, not biblical pride, not spiritual pride, but there is a form of, pro, form of pride that says, God made me American, and I'm happy because of that, and I'm proud to be an American. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with singing, I'm proud to be an American. But Esau Dennison, she writes in her book, Out of Africa, of a good form of pride, that pride, in a good sense, is faith in the idea that God had when he made us. That we understand as Christians that we're not accidents. That God made us on purpose. That God made us with dignity in his image. That, that the, the Lord has given us a purpose and a design. And we embrace that and we rejoice in that. And that, that gives us hope and comfort and, and almost a sort of pride that God has made me and I'm valuable. And that is true. But what we're dealing with in Nebuchadnezzar's life is, is not that. We're talking about a, a spiritual cancer form of pride. And Tim Keller writes of, of this form of, form of pride and says it's rooted basically in two thoughts. And, and both thoughts are very simple and very, very short. Thought number one is I did it. And thought number two is I'm do it, D-U-E. I did it or I'm do it. That's the heartbeat and that is the root of pride. The I did it is when things are going well. When I, when I have money in the bank, when the family is going well, when the health is intact, when, when everything is, is great, that's because of me. It's because I did it. It's because I'm smarter than them. It's because I worked harder. It's because I put in the time. I got the extra education. I take care of my body physically. I, it's because of me. This is why when we're snubbed or we feel like, like someone has done us wrong, it concerns us so much. And it troubles us so deeply because we feel like that shouldn't have happened to me. That, that's, not what, that's not what I deserve. There's so, there's so much self-concentration inside of pride that I did it. But on the flip side, there's an I'm do it. That when life isn't going well, we have this mindset of I'm owed this. I have done X, Y, Z. That should equal A, B, C. So, so I, I need more. I deserve more. I'm owed more. This, this, is, this is what should be given to me. 
And both of those are, are the heartbeat of pride that I did it or I'm do it. And pride, if I was to boil it down to contrast pride and humility, pride is a cosmic form of plagiarism where you're taking credit for what God has done and you're, and you're attaching it to yourself that I did it. But on the flip side, humility looks at life as a sheer gift. I want, I want to show you this. Keep your finger in Daniel chapter 4, but go to uh, 1 Corinthians 4 in the New Testament. Paul illustrates this beautifully, that true humility looks at life as a sheer gift and recognizes where everything comes from. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, we'll start in verse number 6. We'll read verse 6 and 7. Paul writes in verse number 6 and he says, In these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes. And, and here's what it is and here's the reason. That ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written. So don't, don't think of people more than what the Bible says. That no one of you be puffed up for one against the other. So, so don't do this because it's going to produce a sense of pride. What's he talking about? Verse number 7. For who maketh thee to differ one from another? Who, ma who made you different? Who made you American? Who made you your ethnicity? Who made you male or female? Paul says, who made you differ from somebody? And what hast thou that thou dost not receive. Tell me something in your life that isn't a byproduct of the gift of God. Tell me something that, that didn't come from him. And then he says this. Now, if thou didst receive it, if all of life is a gift from God, why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? If this is of God, if this is because of him, if this is his gift, what, what sense do you have? Where do you get off thinking that you did it? thinking that you're do it, thinking that you're owed it, thinking that, that I'm somebody else. And that's what pride is. It's taking credit for what God has done in your life, and instead of receiving it as a gift from God in humility, you look and you say, no, that's, that's because of me. That's because of my effort. That's because of my upbringing. That's because of my schooling. That's because of the, the job that I've worked so hard to get. And some people look at that passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians and say, that, no, no, we can't do that. Humility, that's going to produce self-degradation. Uh, That's going to produce this uh, lack of self-worth. That's going to produce a, uh, I'm, I'm owed nothing. I don't deserve anything. Who am I? That's going to, that's going to make us worse off. And that's not the truth at all. If you, if you pay attention to 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says that you receive the gift. You don't walk around saying, no, I don't deserve, I won't take anything, no, no, thank you, Jesus, no, I, I don't want your gift, I don't want your grace, I don't want your mercy, I don't, I don't want what you have for me, I don't want the gift of salvation, I don't, I don't want heaven. That's a reverse form of pride. When we, when we walk around with the, okay, I don't deserve it, so I'm going to refuse it. I don't, I don't want it, I, it's not for me, I, I have to earn it. That's what you're saying. You're, you're, you're reversing pride and saying, I must earn that, and I'm not going to take it until I do earn it. And you're putting it all back on your own shoulders. And you're saying, I'm not going to take something until I did it. I'm not going to take something until I feel that I'm do it. I'm, I'm going to refuse this. And that's not humility at all. Humility says, I don't deserve it. It is a gift. It is from God. But I receive it. Thank you, Lord. I don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve forgiveness of my sins. I don't deserve your death on the cross. But I take it as a gift nonetheless. I, I love it. I, I take your grace. I take your mercy. I, I love that you've made me an American. I had no control over that, but, but I take it. 
And some people look at it and say, no, you're go you've gone too far. There is a sense to our life where we did do it, right? I mean, I put, in, I put in more effort and I put in more time and I paid for more schooling and that's where I am. This, that person, they didn't do it and they're, they're worse off than me. It is because of me. It is because of what I did. It is it, my, my health and my friendships and my job and my 401k and my family. That's, I can't say it's all a gift from God. Some of that is, is to my own credit. Some of that is because of me. Really? Did you, you chose where you were going to be born? You chose the family you'd have? You chose the century you would be born in? You chose what gender you'd be? You chose what ethnicity? No. You chose your family? You chose your siblings? You chose your early life experiences? All of which any psychologist or psychiatrist or any person with common sense would say are extremely formative to who you are today. You controlled that? You chose, that's because of you? No. We understand that who we are today, no matter who we are, is a byproduct of a gift of God, that, that he chose that and he did that, and that is a gift from him that we receive, and it's not because of us. It's not I did it. It's not I'm doing it. It's a gift of God that Paul writes in Corinthians and says, if that is a gift, then where do you brag? Where do you boast? Where, where does your pride come into play if you really see life that way? And when you see it as a gift from God, then truly pride begins to diminish. And you begin to understand that it is because of him. But I want us to see this thirdly. I want to see the result of pride. Look in verse 33. Nebuchadnezzar says, this is my kingdom. This is my glory. This is my majesty. Verse 33 of Daniel 4. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men and did eat grass as oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Nebi, that's what I call him, Nebi, he begins to live and act like an animal, literally. There, is, uh, there are set, several technical names for this. The most common one is lycanthropy, which is from two Greek words, one meaning wolf and one meaning man, where we use it today just to say someone who thinks they're an animal. And there are, I've read several over the past couple weeks, several case studies of people uh, in the 60s or 40s or different points in time that did this, that think they're an animal. One was in 1946, and, and the, uh, the man refused to eat anything but grass. And the result of that, they said, was that his hair was extremely thick and his fingernails were extremely thick, which is exactly what Daniel chapter 4 says. So th this is a, a real mental illness that does even happen in our day and age now. It's very rare. It's not common. Most uh, psychologists, psychiatrists would never see this in their practice. But, but this does actually happen. But we can learn unless you say, okay, my pride, the result of pride. I'm going to become an animal? Uh, probably not. But here is, I think there's a valuable lesson in a word picture here of what happened in Nebuchadnezzar. Here's what pride honestly does. It defaces humanity and it makes you animalistic. It, it starts to ruin humanity and, and your sense of, of connectedness to the human race. It starts to make you animalistic. There are three ways I think that it can do that. Like an animal, pride produces an inability to sympathize with people. How many of you have, uh, have cats in the room? Any cat lovers? Okay, great. 
How many of you have cats, but you don't love them? Some of you, <laughs> a couple of you. <laughs> they just wandered in my house, and I haven't been able to get rid of them. Any dogs? You have some dogs in the room? Okay, good percentage of the room. We have some pet people in here. I won't ask all the other guinea pigs and rabbits and who knows what you, what you have, scorpions and all the rest of it. But you know something that as much as we love animals, animals can't sympathize with you. You say, no, my cat, they, he rubs my leg when, when I'm sad until you give him food and then he stops or she stops. They, they don't sympathize with you. They don't, they don't have an imagination to be able to understand what you're going through, to be able to understand the, the troubles or, or what's, what's hurting you. And pride eats sympathy and empathy. And it, and it eradicates it from our life that, that we no longer have this human ability that we should have to be able to sympathize or empathize with somebody. We look at, at those that are worse off than us, or we look at the poor person inside of our, of our own community or outside of our community in some third world country, and we say, well, sorry, poor person. I have what I have because of what I did. I worked hard. I applied myself. I, I took the high road. You should too. You're, you're where you're at because of, because of what you did. If you just would have been like me and done what I did, then, then maybe you'd be owed something too. I'm, so, I'm sorry, man, with, with bad relationships, you just should have read Winning with People. I read that book, and it helped me, and now I have a great family, and I have friends, and I have neighbors who love me. Forget that it's you were abused as a child. Forget it's that you're struggling with this physiologically. I have no sympathy for you. I have no empathy for you because what I have is because of me, and what you have, even if it's a lack, is because of you. And it eats it up, and it, and it, makes, us, it makes us animalistic. That, that we can no longer come alongside somebody and weep with them and care with them and help them and sympathize with them. Pride makes us completely and totally absorbed in ourselves. It's no longer about other people. It's no longer about those who are hurting. It's no longer about those that need the gospel. It's about us. It's about, it's about what we've done and what's good for us. I would say, secondly, like an animal, pride creates ego survival instincts. You say, what do you mean like that? C.S. Lewis probably said it best in Mere Christianity. This is what he wrote about pride. He said, pride wants to be petted and admired, to take advantage of other lives, to exploit the whole universe, and especially, speaking of ego survival instincts, especially it wants to be left to itself, to keep well away from anything better or stronger or higher than it, anything that might make it feel small. When pride is in my heart or your heart, when, we, when we're struggling with it, we want to run and resist and get away from anyone who's smarter than us or sharper than us or has more money than us. We resent the person that got the promotion. We resent the person that's accomplished more inside of the world system than we've accomplished. We resent the person that has the good health and we don't have the good health. We, we want to run from that. We want to get away from that. We want to excuse it away, and that's, that's probably because of some, some anomaly. I, I know what I deserve, and I deserve more, and I should be better. I should be just as good as them. I should have just as much as them, and, and it makes us to where we resent the people that get the praise. We resent the people that, that have more, have been blessed by God in some way, but truth be told, if we reverse that, the entire world would be mad at us because we have more than the vast majority of, of the world currently or historically. We enjoy more. We're more spoiled. But we want to get to the, to, the, to the top of the top of the 1%. And I'm not talking about the 1% as we refer to them in politics. I'm talking about us as Americans. We are the 1% as a whole in the world. 
And we, and we want to get to the, to the top portion of that 1%. And we want to resist people that have more. And our ego can't take a hit. And we can't be around people that have more than us or, or know more than us or are better than us because of our pride. Lastly, like an animal, pride makes you incapable of joy. You say, wait a minute, I have a dog, he's happy. I walk in the door, he wags his tail, he jumps around, he's a, he's a great little creature, he's my best friend. That may be true. Animals can know happiness, which is dependent upon their hap. It's dependent upon what happens to you. But animals can't know joy. Animals have no ability to rise above their circumstances. Animals have no ability to be happy or joyful despite of a suffering, despite of a sickness. If you have an animal that's sick, see, see if they're happy at all ever. No, because they don't have the ability to rise above that and to see the silver lining and to, and to understand it. And pride sucks all of the joy out of life. That's the result of it. It makes us like animals in that when things are going well, we say, well, it's about time. Should have happened five years ago. You know, I've been putting in so much work and effort, and I've been doing all this, and I've been reading my books, and I've been, that should have happened. But when things don't go well, we say, this isn't fair. There's never any joy. There's never any satisfaction. There's never any peace because pride eats at us. But what is the, the remedy for pride? I want us to see that lastly. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar experienced. And it was painful. It was very painful for him. And truth be told, it would be painful for us as well. The remedy for pride is this. You cannot will it. God has to do it. And there's a myriad of different ways God could do it. He could do it today right here in, in your seat, in your heart, he could do it. But God has to do this. Not to quote C.S. Lewis too many times in one sermon, but uh, he has in the Chronicles of Narnia, if you've ever watched the movie or read the books, <clears throat> he has... Uh, a story in there of Eustace. Eustace is a prideful, arrogant, rich little boy who, who gets a, a lot of wealth, and he goes to sleep with greed on his mind, and he wakes up a dragon. Now, obviously, this is fictional, but he wakes up a dragon, and Eustace tries to tear the dragon skin off of him and change himself back, but he can't. And he goes to Aslan, who in the, in the story, Aslan is the lion. He's the Christ figure. And he says, Aslan, look at what's happened to me. How, help me, change me back. And Aslan looks at him and he says, I can help you, but I will have to undress you. Speaking of his claws and his skin. And Eustace says, I allowed Aslan to undress me, and I thought that as the lion ripped off the dragon skin off of my body, I thought I was going to die, is what he says in the Chronicles of Narnia. And that's, that's an apt illustration for us that we cannot change our pride by an act of the volition or will. Only God can change us. Only God can, can show us and can rid our hearts of pride. And, and so how does this happen? How does God undress us? How does he take care of our pride? It happens in two ways. And it's two thoughts that completely counteract and, and fight the I did it and I'm do it. They're two thoughts that go in complete opposition to that. The two thoughts are this. Number one, I only deserve judgment. I deserve nothing more than judgment of God. There's, there's nothing in myself or what I've done or my life that I deserve more than judgment. And number two, I also see that I'm an object of the greatest mercy of God. We, we see that in our own lives that if, if we are not embarking upon cosmic plagiarism, if we, are, if we are saying no to our pride, then we don't see the world as I deserve. We don't see our life as I'm due. We don't see it as you owe me, God. We see it as in a biblical way that, God, 
I understand Romans 3. I understand that I'm a sinner. I understand that I am in need of punishment, that I am in need of your mercy and your grace, and I don't deserve it. And I'm not worthy, and I am, I am not a good person. It's, life is not about, and our, our society has been spoon-fed, the why do bad things happen to good people? And you understand biblically that that's a farce. That's not true. It's why do good things happen to bad people? And you see yourself as the bad person, as the sinner. And that's painful. That's extremely painful to come to the point where you realize, I don't deserve this. This is only God's goodness. This is only his mercy. This is only his grace that, that he's done this for me. But at the same time, I see that I'm the object of the greatest mercy, that he has been gracious and he has been merciful and he did die on the cross for my sins and he did pay the price for me. And while, while I don't feel worthy and I don't feel deserving and I don't feel like I'm valuable, I understand that he paid the price for me and I, I must have some inherent worth. I must be valuable to him. He, he paid to redeem me. He did this to me. And this is the point that Nebuchadnezzar comes to. Look at the end of the chapter. Look at verse number 35. You see that Nebuchadnezzar embraces both of these mindsets that I am not worthy, and the only thing that I deserve is punishment, but at the same time, I'm the object of God's greatest mercy. Look at verse number 35. After things were restored to Nebuchadnezzar, verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. Now that is, that is a potent phrase because Nebuchadnezzar is including himself. Who am I? Who are we? We're nothing. And he, God, doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? When you grasp that, when you grasp that you don't deserve anything, you have the inability now to look at heaven and say, God, what are you doing? Why would you do this to me? Why would you give me this? Why would you, you see yourself as, I deserve the little bit of good I have or the lot of good I have. I don't deserve that. I don't deserve anything but judgment. I can no longer look at heaven and shake my fist and say, you can't do this to me. What are you doing, God? You do, I don't deserve this. I'm due more. I'm owed more. You, you, have, you have the inability when you grasp that mindset. But verse number 36, and at the same time, my reason returned unto me for the glory of my kingdom, and mine honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my Lord sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. So I got this gift, and this gift, and this gift, and this gift, and, and what, what do I say now that I have these gifts? Do I say, look what I've done? Do I say, look what I have? Do I say, look what I've built? No, he says in verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he's able to abase. He says, I understand now that, that I am the object of God's mercy. I understand now that those gifts are from him, and my kingdom's from him, and my power's from him, and my majesty's from him. This is not about me. This is about what he's given me and what, what he has done in my life. Nebuchadnezzar was a man who thought he was the master of the universe, which, which, was, which was a stretch. He was not. He, he is not the master of the universe, but he's proclaiming that he is, and God humbles him. But on the flip side, we as Christians have the supreme model of Jesus Christ, who was and is the master of the universe, but yet chose to deny it. But yet chose to humble himself, to become a servant, to become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That he's the, it's the opposite. It's the humility. 
It's, it's the, as the master of the universe, as the creator of it all, I'm going to take on flesh, and I'm going to die on a cross, and I'm going to humble myself in supreme contrast to Nebuchadnezzar. And why did he do that? Why would Jesus do that? Why would he, why would he embark upon that? To cure you? To take the disease of me and eradicate it from your heart? To save you from your sin, which does include pride, which is the top of God's hate list in Proverbs? To bring you to a point where you realize that this is not about me, and I don't deserve anything other than judgment, but Jesus Christ did it for me, and he humbled himself. He is the supreme example, and now I'm the object of his mercy. He wants to give me grace. He wants to give me salvation, and I accept that. One commentator said of this mindset when we grasp that we don't deserve anything other than judgment, but at the same time, God has given us so much grace and mercy. He said, an experience of Christ's grace strikes a fatal blow to our egocentricity. The sight of Jesus dying for us out of love destroys both pride and self-hatred at the same time. When you understand that Jesus Christ died for you out of a heart of love, it eradicates your pride and it also eradicates the I won't, I won't take anything, I won't, I won't receive anything, your self-hatred. He deals with them both in one fatal blow when you understand that this was for you. And the true remedy for pride is an understanding, is a mindset that Nebuchadnezzar experiences. That I don't deserve this. I, I didn't do it. And I'm not do it. This is not about me. This is about him. But he has given. And in humility, like 1 Corinthians, I receive it and I take it. And all I can say is thank you, Jesus. All I can say is thank you for the price that you paid. I don't know why you did it for me. I don't feel like I'm worthy. I don't feel like I'm valuable. I don't, but apparently I am because you did it for me. And I take it as a gift and I say thank you. And when we have that heart, then pride begins to dissipate. Then, then our animalistic behavior of our inability to sympathize with people, our inability to empathize with people, our, our being so attached to our ego begins to go away. When we understand, you could say it this way, when we understand biblically who we are and who he is, when we understand that all of life is a gift, we did not do this, we did not earn this, we did not work ourselves through this, it's a gift of God, not just salvation, although it is, but even what we live and, and what we enjoy as Americans. It's because of him. And when we understand those mindsets, then pride begins to go away and the remedy is applied to our hearts and lives and hopefully we do not have to experience what Nebuchadnezzar experienced. Hopefully, our life does not have to turn to shambles before we realize that. Hopefully, we have the sense enough to realize biblically that that is, that's the cure today for my heart before it becomes that drastic. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar before 12 months was up, he said, if you will turn to righteousness, if you will begin to show mercy to the poor, if you will begin to do that, then you'll be spared. But Nebuchadnezzar refused. And this, this message to us as Americans is extremely pointed. And, and for many in this room, it may be a clarion call that says, take note, humble yourself, understand who you are, understand who God is, because if we don't, the, the solution to that is a Nebuchadnezzar sort of solution. The solution is drastic, and we'll be thankful for it at the end, but I, I dare say that God prefers not to do it. I dare say that he prefers for us just to understand now today who we are and who he is.